Amen. As we begin this morning, I want to take a moment to just explain where we're headed and how we're going to get there. Uh, Mr. Brillhart and I have uh, mapped out our preaching schedule in regards to Malachi well in advance, and it fell out that I would be dealing with this section, but because of the nature of the section itself, it's going to take more than one week. And consequently, I'm going to introduce the section that deals with the problems of tithing and offerings in Israel uh, that are referred to uh, by Malachi this week. Next week, Mr. Brillhart will skip ahead and begin to expound the next section. But then when I return to the pulpit the following week, we'll come back to the subject we're beginning today. So that's just to let you know where we're going so you'll know that we're not confused and hopefully we won't confuse you. As we begin to talk about this subject as it's set forth in the prophecy of Malachi, um, it's important for us to realize that it's going to take more than one week because the passage requires us not only to spend time on its exposition, but also in its application. And uh, I am afraid that I have done you a disservice by not preaching more regularly on the subject of the importance of giving to the work of the Lord, particularly as it relates to the church. And by doing so, failing to do so, I should say, I fear I've created a problem that needs to be addressed. I've asked the Lord to forgive my timidness in regard to that subject, and I ask for yours as well. I mentioned early on in this study of Malachi that we all needed to buckle up because the unpacking of this prophetic book was going to challenge us in various ways. You can't earnestly and honestly go through it without coming face to face with what it means to serve the Lord from the heart in various ways. I say that because the Lord keeps bringing his people back to that. You say this, but this is what I say. And every time he does that, it reveals something in, of them and of their hearts. So we're looking at Malachi chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. And as we pass from the section that ends with verse 6, I think it's wise to, to pause and take into account just that just what that word says or what that verse says and how it applies to the whole atmosphere of this book, this chapter, and really the whole book itself. So you look at Malachi 3.6 and it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. And what is being presented to us here by the Lord himself through the prophet is the importance of his immutability or his changelessness. That's what we're talking about. This verse captures an important aspect of what is said in the verses leading up to it, and it reflects on everything that follows. There are, in the previous sections, particularly of this chapter, promises of both blessing and judgment. They're found as this chapter unfolds. And we talked about that last time. The refiner's fire 
and the fuller's soap, it either purifies or it consumes the one to whom they are applied. Either purifies them or it consumes them. On the one hand, for the believer, God promises refinement. T.V. Moore, who might have changed his mind if he knew it was coming in the 20th century with TV, but uh, the way he's known to history is TV more. He says, the purer the gold, the, the hotter the fire, the whiter the garment, the harder the washing. So for the believer, this application of refinement and fuller's soap is, is just that, refining and purifying. On the other hand, He warns the unbeliever and the rebellious that he is as much an enemy to sin as ever he was. And impertinent sinners will find him so, says Matthew Henry. That's the witness of this changelessness. He he doesn't change. Therefore, he will always be to his own a refiner and always be to his enemies a judge. And it will be that way through all the ages of man. And thankfully, this does never change. Jehovah is declaring here that because he doesn't change, so it will ever be. And for his covenant people, that's a good good thing. Because it explains that while they're guilty of so much, there's still hope. They are still a nation on the earth, referring now to Israel. Not because they're sinless, but because of God's steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. So he's going through and he's saying, I'm telling you, you, you owe this to me. And you say, well, how can you say we haven't done that? Or what do we lack? Or what don't we have? And the Lord comes back and says, this is how you've sinned against me. And now he's saying, and the reason, even though that's true, that you haven't just been consumed, is because I am a covenant God, keeping faith with you, refining you, changing you, showing you grace. That's what he's saying to Israel here in Malachi. But this, beloved, is the hope of the church, too. Because there's not, in all the world, a sinless congregation. I hope that didn't shock you. But there's not anywhere in the world a sinless congregation, a sinless presbytery of elders and pastors, a sinless denomination or association, not anywhere in the world. The church stands, the gates of hell do not prevail against it. It doesn't destroy itself, not because of its sinless faithfulness, but because of God's promised covenant love and faithfulness (coughs) excuse me so the prophet declares in the name of God that the reason that they have not been consumed going back now to the days of Malachi is merely from my mercy from my love from my long suffering I have not dealt with you according to your sins as the King James Version expresses it in Lamentations 327 It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. 
Now, it's a mistake, beloved, to judge the future of the church on its apparent strength at any time. It's ambient temperature, we might say. Is it warm or cold? Or the doomsday nature of the cultural surroundings. The church's hope does not rest in visible tokens like that, but on the unchanging love of God who will not allow the gates of hell to prevail against her. The immutability of God, then, is at once the guarantee that his people shall be cast into the furnace for purification, and also that they shall not be consumed. Let not the Christian heart grow timid in a time of prevalent wickedness and unbelief. In the fear of the ark of God may perish. The sons of Jacob shall not be consumed. The seed of Christ shall not perish. The church will continue to the end, no matter what may be seen outwardly going on, because of the steadfast love of the Lord. When we talk about Jehovah, what is there in that name? Well, the title or name Jehovah communicates three basic things. First, that God is of himself. That is, he has his existence and being from himself. Nothing gives him existence. He exists in himself. Secondly, that he is the one who gives being to everything else. Nothing can be but by him. And thirdly, that it is he who gives being to his word. It's what it is. It brings forth what it does by his independent and sovereign will. That's why at the beginning he could say, let there be light, and there was light. That he, the power of that word to be able to do that is because in him is all being. And as you survey the scriptures, you'll find that where any promise is made or any judgment is threatened, it is sealed with the name of Jehovah. You go and just look, you'll see that. Wherever promises are made, it's in the name of the Lord. It's in the name of the Lord. Or where judgments are promised, it's in the name of the Lord. John Trapp kind of brings this to a conclusion by saying, I change not, I am neither false nor fickle, to say and unsay, to alter my mind, or to eat my word. I do not change. I am forever what I am. Now that brings us to a needed reminder. The people of Israel needed to be reminded of this because their hearts had grown cold and hard. They made the sad assumption that they were sinning with impunity and there seemed to be no consequences. That either God was not going to judge them, that somehow he didn't really mean what he said, or that God is not judging, therefore what does it matter? Why bother if there's no judgment, if there's no consequence for disobedience? So you can see those two views that were developing among the people. He's not judging, he's never going to judge. <laughs> so we can do whatever we want. And that might be called the 
the proactive view, and then you have the negative view, the depressing view. Well, these people are living that way and nothing's happening to them, so why should I bother? Let's just eat, drink, and be merry, because there's no consequence. On the one hand, that it was causing, giving some license, and on the other hand, it was causing discouragement and disappointment. And that's the difference between these two views when there is not an immediate accountability for sin. It also applies to promises and blessings as well. Some see the delay of promises as they serve the Lord as indicating that living for the Lord and trying to do as he commands is futile. And their will grows weak and their hands get tired. I, I, I'm doing this because the Lord has commanded me to do this. And you can put it in all kinds of contexts. You can put it in the context of parenting, for example, where you're, you're striving to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You may not always be seeing what you are hoping you'll see as you carry on that service. And as you don't see it, it tends to make you grow weary and your hands tired. But the truth is that the changeless God is going to act in perfect concert with who he is. Even though judgments or blessings may seem delayed or even forgotten, he will still be faithful. He will still do what he promises. He will still bring the judgments that he threatens. Because Jehovah is omnipotent, beloved, and because he's sovereign, he's able to do all that he intends. Nothing can hinder or delay him. And therefore, as Richard Stock says, he is in himself and in his decrees unchangeable. There's no need, no occasion, no circumstance, which requires him to do anything differently than he intends. And what he asks on us as his people, or asks of us as his people, is to put our trust in him and in his changelessness and to push forward in what we know is our duty to bring our lives into conformity to the witness of his word and then trust him in his changeless, steadfast love to bring about what he promises in his own time and in his own way. His promises and his judgments shall come to pass in their time, and no one thing shall come to the ground. Howsoever they are not so speedily as you may think executed, yet they shall be, for they cannot but be accomplished, he says. So that's kind of a pivotal verse, that verse 6. Looking back, and it's looking forward to what's said here in this passage. The thing to keep in mind as you look at all this, the Lord says, is that I am changeless. And that's why you're not consumed. So now I've got something to talk to you about. And then he begins to unfold a problem in Israel. And it brings us to the opening of this next section, beginning with verse 7, where the Lord begins to bear down on the hearts and consciences of his people. And it can be broken down to three parts. The first part is in verse 7, just a general charge of disobedience and spiritual decay and a call to repentance. 
The second chart, or the second part, is the specific sin of neglecting tithes and offerings offered or cited in answer to the challenge of the people. And that's verse 8. And then the third part is verses 9 through 12, a call to reformation in this particular matter and a promise of blessing uh, in that very uh, event of their reformation. Now we'll look at parts 1 and 2 during the rest of our time today and then pick up with parts 2 and 3 in two weeks. So turn your attention now to verse 7. And there you read this. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Now, I put in there in the title for this section a little British witticism, Mind How You Go. And by that, I want to say that if you're reading this as nothing more than an ancient message to a people who lived long ago in a world far away. You're either denying the testimony of the Lord or simply not applying the word properly to your own thinking. Now, granted, this has an application to the times and circumstances of the people to whom it was spoken and the people to whom it was written at the time. But God has made it abundantly clear, beloved, that these things were written for our admonition and the instruction of his church, <coughs> excuse me, for as long as it exists. After citing some of the ancient history of Israel, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 through 12. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you read these things, these weaknesses and these failures that are delineated in the Old Testament, and you look at them and you say, boy, weren't those Israelites bad people? <laughs> Why didn't they get it? Why didn't they understand it? And you're standing here thinking, me, I've got it, I've, I understand it. Take heed, lest you fall. Because they are written as an example to us so that we can be more aware of what the offense to God looks like and how God deals with those offenses and can respond more quickly because we have these examples before us. And they demonstrate to us what it is God requires of us from the heart. Paul tells the Romans in Romans 15.4, for, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is here for us. This is here, let me make that even more personal. This is here for you. It's been preserved by God for you. For you in this day, in this hour, in your life. Now, there's a general and there's a specific understanding of the truth that we see here in verse 7 that needs to be understood. Let's begin with generally. Is this first clause 
true today in general terms. Were your fathers sinners? And did they disobey the law of God? And it's interesting that every generation of us here can say that, right? We, because wherever we go, this is true. This is a reality. Did your great-grandfather sin? Yes. How about your grandfather? Yes. Your father? Yes. And what about you and your children, if you have any? And your grandchildren? So in this sense, we can say that nothing has changed, right? We can make the same confession. Yes, we and our fathers have sinned. Now, you can say that your father or grandfather was or is a sinner, but if he was saved or is saved and his sins are forgiven and he is walking with the Lord according to the grace of God in his life, it changes the picture some. Is he perfect? No. But he's not deliberately and willfully turning away from and neglecting the revealed will of God either. In this context now, as we draw down from that general idea to specifically, the prophet is not referring to the general sinfulness of all men, but the specific willful disobedience of both their fathers and their own generation. But if you turn from what this passage says or you dismiss it because of this more specific application, it can cause an error in judgment and application in regards to this passage. In other words, because Specifically, it's talking about the tithes and offerings and they're being brought in this context in this time. If you say, well, we're talking about sin in general, about fathers sinning and we sinning, but here this is a specific item and this doesn't really apply to us, you're going to miss something. It's absolutely necessary that when you look around you, that you and I understand, contrary to that opinion of the Pharisee in the temple, we are all sinners just like other men. And it's important that we understand that. Even as we put our trust in Christ, we are sinners just like other men and women. And it's only because of God's mercy that we are not consumed by and because of our sins. Why are you not just overcome with sin? Because of the Lord's mercy. Because you're his. He's given you victory over sin. He's given you the strength to resist it. He's given you the forgiveness of it. It doesn't consume you. But if it wasn't for the love of Christ, it would, just like it does others who are without Christ. And it's of his mercy that we're not consumed because of that sin. That we're not just dealt with. Stock again says, that men escape destruction and are not consumed with God's judgment for their sin. It is only the mercy and goodness of God. The pardon of sin, as you all know, arises from God's mercy. All sin is against God. He alone can pardon sin and he merciful, mercifully pardons it in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that causes us to cry out with David as he does in Psalm 115, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto your name give glory for your mercy and for your truth's sake. If anyone is not consumed by and because of his or her sin, it's because of divine mercy and not personal merit. Now we get into the nature of their sin. The sin that our fathers committed and that we commit in this context. And I want you to notice that it takes two forms. They turned aside from, that is, they disobeyed (coughs) what was (coughs) commanded of them or forbidden of them, and they didn't keep the Lord's statutes. In other words, they were guilty of sins of commission, where they did what was forbidden, and omission, where they didn't do all that was commanded. Sins of commission and omission. And they're laid out here at their feet. On the one hand, they turned aside and did what was forbidden. And on the other, they neglected to do what was commanded. They're accused not only because they committed things contrary to the law, but because they did not, they did not do things agreeable to it. Not only committed the forbidden, but omitted the commanded says Richard Stock. Now, the seriousness of the omitted is sometimes lost on sinners. Jeremiah said, in speaking to Israel, and this is in the second part of Jeremiah 10, verse 25, he says, Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name. So it's the omission of worshiping God that Jeremiah says is the reason that they should be dealt with. The law, beloved, is affirmative and commanding as well as negative and forbidding. Deliberate inaction is an action in itself and therefore sin. When it's exercised in something particularly that is known to be good. James addresses this in James 4.17. He says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, from him it is sin. Many who accounted a sin to have other gods have never accounted a sin not to know the true God, to believe him and to fear him, not to pray to him. It's a mistake, beloved, if we are tempted to judge all our goodness and service to Christ in negative terms. And it's easy to do that. If one thinks that he or she is righteous because they've never committed adultery, but at the same time have failed to love their spouse as God commands, That one who's doing that is drawing a sense of self-righteousness from the negative alone. I'm a good and godly husband because I've never cheated on my wife. I don't honor her. I don't respect her as I should. I don't love her as Christ loves the church, but I haven't committed adultery. So I'm an obedient, loving husband. No. That 
forbidden part is part of what's commanded, but with it comes the other side, which is not only are you not supposed to commit adultery, you're supposed to love her as Christ loves the church. And so you have to put those two pieces together. In the case before us here, they were no longer giving their tithes and offerings to the idols, which was a thing that was forbidden. The problem was they weren't giving anything to God's house or to God's service, which was a thing commanded. But they were bold in their self-righteousness because they were no longer doing that wicked thing that their fathers did, giving things to idols. They weren't doing that any longer. Instead, they were spending it on themselves. We'll come back to this in a moment, but before we look at that more carefully, notice this, the long, unbroken track record. It's been since the days of your fathers, beloved, that you haven't been conforming to my word. And you see how it plays out here? He says, you've not been conforming to my word. And they've been saying, oh no, we have, because we haven't done what our fathers did in giving things to idols. And the Lord says, that's only half the story. Yes, they were giving things to idols, and and when they were, they were sinning against me, but they also were not giving to me what I commanded and the way that I commanded and the spirit in which I commanded it. And you are continuing in their same sin, not because you're giving it to your idols, but you're not giving it to me, what I have called for. It's been since the days of your fathers that you've been in a sin. Beloved, what a tragic thing it is when the practice of sin in particular in any specific sin, becomes habitual, as one puts it. And, individual, and an individual grows aged and ancient in their practice of omission or commission. And these first words, their sins are amplified from the time and continuance in them. Your sins are not of short time and small continuance, but you have been long rebellious against me, even since the days of your fathers. This is why as soon as we discover, or rather God discovers in us, some sin, it's wise, beloved, to shake it off before it becomes a matter of habit. A habit so strong that later, when we find it ruinous, We lack both the will and the power to escape because it binds us too strongly. Now, at the end of verse 7, there's a call for repentance. This is where we come back to verse 6. I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, this is who you are, but here is my word to you. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Because I change not. That's why you're not consumed. Yes, you're continuing in the sins of your fathers, and you should be consumed for that if we're just looking at it as a matter of your sin. But because you are my people and I am your God, if you return to me and look to me for mercy and look for forgiveness through me, then I will return to you. And consider how beautifully this call to repentance is set forth. It's urgent. And it's gentle, and it's full of promise. 
And you can see the, the, the gentleness of it, can't you? You've been sinning since the days of your father's return to me. Turn and look back and come to me. It's not the wagging of the finger and saying, you better turn around and get back here. It's not like that. It's a return to me. And if you return to me, I will return to you. And I will bless you. It's the very voice of the prodigal son's father. Matthew Henry paraphrases it in this way. Return unto me and to your duty. Return to your service. Return to your allegiance. Return as a traveler that has missed his way. As a soldier that has run from his colors. As a treacherous spouse that has gone away. Return, thou backsliding Israel. Return to me. Return to me and I'll return to you. But things will never be the same. Is that the picture you get here? Return to me. But just remember, things are never going to be the same as they used to be between you and me. No. It's return to me with an open heart and with a spirit of love and a dependence upon me. And I will turn, return to you with all my love and all my care for you. And all my blessing and all my mercy and all my protection and all my provision. And this plays out so beautifully in the very context of the sin that, they're, that he's dealing with here. He says, return to me and bring the offerings and the tithes into the storehouse and see if I will not return to you and pour out a blessing upon you in your lives, in your homes, as you walk before me. Give me mine, and I will give you mine for your blessing. As we observed last week, God doesn't profit from us, beloved, but we can only profit from him. But here's the problem, and with this we have to close this morning. But their response is, wait a minute. How shall we return? What do you mean? What do you mean we need to return? Where have we gone? We're not guilty of anything. That's what they're saying. They were impudent and proud and claimed that they didn't need to repent and return to God because they had never left off obedience. Being guilty unto themselves of no sin, no transgression, or any falling away from God. This was possible in part, beloved, because they were ignorant of the true nature of the law of God and their own hearts. They had no sense, says Stock, of the strictness and the extent and the spiritual nature of God's law, not the spirit of rebellion that was translating into neglecting what was required by the law. They had so long accustomed themselves not to restore and pay unto the Lord that was his, uh, pay unto the Lord what was his, that now they say they owed no such thing. They had offended for generations and they've denied it. The days of Jeremiah, the Lord said through his prophet, you say I am innocent. Surely his anger is turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. 
Trapp uses a phrasing here that I never heard before. And he says that they were like someone standing in their own slippers and no one can tell them that they have a black eye. And it took me a while to figure out what in the world John Trapp was talking about. But it's really pretty simple. They were comfortably standing their own ground against God. They were standing in their own slippers. And that was the testimony of what they'd done and how they'd done it. And they said, there's no black in my eye. The Lord was saying, you've sinned and there's black in your eye. And they were standing their own ground saying, it is not so. Right in his face. Sin, because it's natural to mankind, doesn't always seem foreign to us. Unfortunately, Fircrest, as some of you may know, has its own independent water supply. And for years, it was chlorine-free. But just recently, for some reason I can't figure out, they decided that it needed to be added, even though it wasn't needed, just to, be, just to have an extra level of protection. And it ruined our water. Now when you pick up the cup, you can smell the chlorine in the water. We never had that before. Now for people who have that all the time, they don't even notice it. Because it's been in their water all along and it just doesn't strike them. But to me, and to Bonnie too, and maybe others of you who live in Fircrest, it's changed. And we can tell the difference. The problem with us is that sin is so natural to us that we don't always notice when it has found a place in our lives. Trapp says that they had become so crusty and brawny or strong in this sin that Israel, though cut or pierced with the sword of the Spirit, wouldn't bleed or feel anything. Now, we'll get into the character of their rebellion and the challenge that God places before them here in two weeks. I just want to close by going over these points. First is the blessing and the seriousness of God's immutability. What a gift that is. What a blessing that is to us. How thankful we can be for it. Our, we are secure in Christ because of that immutability, that changelessness of God. But it's also a threat to the world. Secondly, you and I are sinners just like other men and women. And we need to keep that in view as we look at the world around us and as we look at ourselves. Thirdly, repentance is a beautiful thing. Turn to me, and I will turn to you. There's no hurt or harm in repentance. It is a blessed and wonderful thing when we come to the Lord and confess our sins. Because he is ready and willing to forgive us our sins. And then lastly, beware the danger of falsely perceived innocence. Just because we are not in active disobedience doesn't mean that we are in conformity from the heart, from the spirit. And the invitation to return is both a testimony to God's grace and every sinner's opportunity. Repentance is the most certain means and sovereign medicine to mitigate and remove, to prevent and keep away judgments and plagues of God from the persons of men or the things that belong 
to them. Let's look to the Lord together in prayer. Father in heaven, as we continue to look at this scene and this part of your word, we pray, Lord, that we would ever have in mind that these things are written for our instruction, for our admonition. And Lord, we pray that we may seek to apply them to our hearts, that you would apply them to our hearts by your spirit, according to our needs. Father, grant us the grace to see where we are. And Father, if there's a need for repentance, let that need fall upon the heart now. And may anyone here who needs to repent, do it and turn again to the Lord, because we know that you will return to him or to her, and that they will find this table a sweet place to sit this morning. Lord, if any are without hope in you and are living in their sins, may they understand that the fact that they have not perhaps been held accountable for them in the way that they feared is not intended to give them a sense of secure, false security. That, Lord, is just a matter of your mercy, and the day of judgment will come. And may they even now flee, flee to the gospel, flee to Christ. Seek the forgiveness of their sins and the peace that passes understanding. Bless us, Lord, as we move to the table now. In Jesus' name, amen.